the original paraphernalia for the flash fiction contest had been lost long ago, and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man Stuart, the oldest man in town, was born. Mr. Lieberman spoke frequently of making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as little tradition as was represented by the current box. Mr. Garrett and his oldest son, Nick, hold the black box securely on the stool until Mr. Lieberman can stir the papers thoroughly with his hand. Because so much of the ritual had been forgotten or discarded, Mr. Lieberman substituted slips of paper for the chips of wood that had been used for generations. Chips of wood had been all very well when the village was tiny, but now that the population was more than three hundred and likely to keep growing, it was better to use materials that would fit more easily into the confined space. The fourth incarnation of the Escape Artist's Flash Fiction Contest is here. Pseudopod is leading the charge this time. Every author may submit up to two original stories of 500 words or less for consideration. Submissions are open now until September 15. The competition will begin in October. The three winning stories will be purchased and run as an episode of Pseudopod. Stories will be published on a members-only section of the forums, so first publication rights will not be expended by participating in the contest. It's easy to become a member. Visit our forums for rules and details at forum.escapeartists.net. To enter, visit pseudopod.submittable.com forward slash submit. Good luck! And may the most horrific win. Podcastle, episode 379, for September 1st, 2015. The Truth About Owls, by Amal El Motar. Rated PG. And hello, and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Khalida Muhammad Ali, your host for Podcastle, episode 379. A few months ago, I got sucked into taking one of those online quizzes. The title was something like, Which Bird Are You? I can't recall the questions, but I think that because of my need for quiet and solitude and my love for the open country and wooded areas, I was deemed an owl-type person. I was quite pleased with my strigoform designation. I mean, who wouldn't want to be an owl? These solitary, silent, regal, beautiful nighttime predators have been around for 70 to 80 million years. Depictions of owls have been found in the Chauvet-Pont-d'Arc cave in France, which contains some of the earliest known cave paintings in the world. And... Owls are symbols of deep intelligence, right? Well, that's what we like to think. 
I later learned that in most other places, owls are not seen quite so favorably. In some parts of Africa, owls are considered harbingers of doom. Aztecs and Mayans saw owls as evil omens, as did the Cherokee and other Native American tribes. And that thing about owls being intelligent? Well, birds in general aren't very smart creatures. Sorry, bird lovers. But owls fall at the low end of the intelligence scale. Long story short, I recently took a different which bird are you test. This time, I got an eagle. And it said, Just an honorable you are the eagle. You hold yourself to the highest of moral standards and expect the same in every other person you meet. Despite this, you tend to be a good judge of character. Your honest nature and cunning work ethic make you a force to be reckoned with and a strong leader. Now that's better. But enough about me. Podcastle is very proud to present The Truth About Owls, written by Amal L. Matar. First published in Kaleidoscope Diverse YA Science Fiction and Fantasy Stories, it was then reprinted in Strange Horizons in January 2015. And then in Jonathan Strahan's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Volume 9, in May of 2015. And it's won the Locus Award. Amal Almatar is a Nebula-nominated author of The Honey Month, a collection of very short fiction and poetry written to the taste of 28 different kinds of honey. Her work has recently appeared in Uncanny Magazine and in Lightspeed Magazine's Queers Destroy Science Fiction special issue. She's one-fourth of the Down and Safe, a new podcast discussing iconic British science fiction program Blake's Seven, along with Scott Lynch, Liz Myers, and Michael D. Thomas. She also reviews books for NPR, Tor.com, and Lightspeed. She edits Goblin Fruit and presently divides her time and heart between Ottawa and Glasgow. Find out more about Amal El Matar at Amal El Matar, A M A L E L M O H T A R dot com. Or you can follow her antics on Twitter at Tithenai, T I T H E N A I. Wow. That's one busy woman. On to our story. Be silent as an owl and listen to this wonderful tale. The Truth About Owls by Amal Al-Muhtar For Tessa Come. Owls have eyes that match the skies they hunt through. Amber-eyed owls hunt at dawn or dusk. Golden-eyed owls hunt during the day. Black-eyed owls hunt at night. No one knows why this is. Anissa's eyes are black, and she no longer hates them. She used to wish for eyes the color of her father's, the beautiful pale green-blue that people were always startled to see in a brown face. But she likes, now, having eyes and hair of a color those same people find frightening. Even her teachers are disconcerted, she's found. They don't try to herd her as they do the other students. 
She sees them casting uncertain glances towards her before ushering their group from one owl exhibit to another, following the guide. She turns to go in the opposite direction. Anissa! Annie! This way! She turns, teeth clenching. Mrs. Roberts, whose pale, powdered face, upswept yellow hair, and bright red lips make Anissa think of Victoria Sponge, is smiling encouragingly. My name is Anissa, actually, she replies, and feels the power twitching out from her chest and into her arms, which she crosses quickly, and her hands, which she makes into fists, digging nails into her palms. The power recedes, but she can still feel it pouring out from her eyes like a swarm of bees while Mrs. Roberts looks at her in perplexed confusion. Mrs. Roberts' eyes are a delicate, ceramic sort of blue. Anissa watches another teacher, Miss Gruer, lean over to murmur something into Mrs. Roberts' ear. Mrs. Roberts only looks more confused, but renews her smile uncertainly, nods, and turns back to her group. Anissa closes her eyes, takes a deep breath, and counts to ten before walking away. Owls are predators. There are owls that would tear you apart if you gave them half a chance. The Scottish Owl Centre is a popular destination for school trips. A short bus ride from Glasgow, an educational component, lots of opportunities for photographs to show the parents, and who doesn't like owls nowadays? Anissa has found herself staring, more than once, at owl print bags and shirts, owl-shaped earrings and belt buckles, plush owl toys and wire statues in bright, friendly colours. She finds it all desperately strange. Anissa remembers the first time she saw an owl. She was seven years old. She lived in Rie with her father and her grandparents, and that morning she had thrown a tantrum about having to feed the chickens, which she hated, because of their smell and the way they pecked at her when she went to gather their eggs, and also because of the rooster, who was fierce and sharp-spurred. She hated the chickens, she shouted. Why didn't they just make them into soup? She was given more chores to do, which she did fumingly, stomping her feet and banging cupboard doors and sometimes crying about how unfair it was. Are you brooding over the chickens? her father would joke, trying to get her to laugh, which only made her more furious because she did want to laugh, but she didn't want him to think she wasn't still mad, because she was. She had calmed down by lunch and forgotten about it by supper. But while helping her grandmother with the washing up, she heard a scream from the yard. Her grandmother darted out, and Anissa followed, her hands dripping soap. An owl, enormous, tall as a lamb, taller than any bird she had ever seen, perched in the orange tree, the rooster a tangle of blood and feathers in its talons. As Anissa stared, the owl bent its head to the rooster's throat and tore out a long strip of flesh. When Anissa thinks about this, and she does, often, whenever her hands are wet and soapy in just the right way, fingertips on the brink of wrinkling, she remembers the guilt. 
She remembers listening to her grandmother cross herself and speak her words of protection against harm, warding them against death in the family, against troubled times. She remembers the fear, staring at the red and pink and green of the rooster, its broken, dangling head. But she can't remember, though she often tries, whether she felt, for the first time, the awful electric prickle of the power in her chest flooding out to her palms. There are owls that sail through the air like great ships. There are owls that flit like finches from branch to branch. There are owls that look at you with disdain, and owls that sway on the perch of your arm like a reed in the wind. Anissa is not afraid of owls. She thinks they're interesting enough when people aren't cooing over them or embroidering them onto cushions. From walking around the sanctuary, she thinks the owl she saw as a child was probably a Eurasian eagle owl. She wanders from cage to cage, environment to environment, looking at owls that bear no resemblance to the pretty patterns lining the hems of skirts and dresses, owls that lack a facial disc, Owls with bulging eyes and fuzzy heads, owls the size of her palm. Some of the owls have names distinct from their species. Hosking, Brew, Sarabi. Anissa pauses in front of a barn owl and frowns at the name. Blow do wed? She sounds out beneath her breath while the owl watches her. It's Bladaweth, actually, says a friendly voice behind her. Anissa turns to see one of the owl handlers from the flying display, a black woman named Izzy, hair wrapped up in a brightly coloured scarf, moving into one of the aviaries, gloved hands clutching a feed bucket. It means flower face in Welsh. Anissa flushes. She looks at the owl again. She has never seen a barn owl up close and does not think it looks like flowers. She thinks, all at the same time, that the heart-shaped face is alien and eerie and beautiful and like when you can see the moon while the sun is setting and that there should be a single word for the colour of the wings that's like the sheen of a pearl but not the pearl itself. She asks, Is it a boy or a girl? Do you not know the story of Bladaweth? As he smiles. She was a beautiful woman, made of flowers, who was turned into an owl. Anissa frowns. That doesn't make sense. It's from a book of fairy tales called the Mabinogion. Not big on sense-making. Izzy chuckles. I don't think she likes it either, to be honest. She's one of our most difficult birds. But she came to us from Wales, so we gave her a Welsh name. Anissa looks into Bladaweth's eyes. They are blacker than her own. I like her, she declares. A group of owls is called a parliament. Owls are bad luck. The summer Anissa saw the owl kill the rooster was the summer Israel bombed the country. She always thinks of it that way, not as a war. She doesn't remember a war. She never saw anyone fighting. She remembers a sound she felt more than heard, a thud that shook the earth and rattled up through her bones, then another, then a smell like chalk, before being swept into her father's arms and taken down into shelter. She remembers feeling cold, 
She remembers afterwards anger, weeping, conversations half heard from her bed, her mother's voice reaching them in sobs from London, robotic and strangled over a poor internet connection, a mixing of English and Arabic, accents swapping places. Her father's voice always calm, measured, but with a tension running through it like when her cousin put a wire through a dead frog's leg to make it twitch. She remembers asking her grandmother if Israel attacked because of the owl. Her grandmother laughed in a way that made Anissa feel hollow and lost. Shh, don't tell Israel! An owl killed a rooster, that's more reason to attack! An owl killed a rooster in Lebanon and the government let it happen! Quick, get off the bridges! The whole family laughed. Anissa was terrified and told no one. Why did the owl not go courting in the rain? Because it was too wet to woo. What makes her difficult? asks Anissa, watching Bladawith sway on her perch. Izzy looks fondly at the owl. Well, we acquired her as a potential display bird, but she doesn't take well to training. She hisses at most of the handlers when they pass by, tries to bite. She's also very territorial and won't tolerate the presence of male birds, so we can't use her for breeding. Izzy offers Bladawith a strip of raw chicken, which she gulps down serenely. But she likes you, Anissa observes. Izzy smiles ruefully. I'm not one of her trainers. It's easy to like people who ask nothing of you. Izzy pauses, eyes Bladawith with exaggerated care. Or at least it's easy to not hate them. Before Anissa leaves with the rest of her class, Izzy writes down Mabinogion for her on a piece of paper, a rather deaf doodle of an owl's face inside a five-petaled flower, and an invitation to come again. Most owls are sexually dimorphic. The female is usually larger, stronger, and more brightly colored than the male. Anissa's mother is tall and fair, and Anissa looks nothing like her. Her mother's brown hair is light and thin and straight. Her mother's skin is pale. Anissa is used to people making assumptions. Are you adopted? Is that your stepmother? When they see them together. But her mother's new job at the university has made outings together rare. In fact, since moving to Glasgow, Anissa hardly sees her at home anymore, since she has evening classes and departmental responsibilities. What are you reading? asks her mother, shrugging on her coat after a hurried dinner together. Anissa, legs folded up underneath her on the couch, holds up a library copy of the Mabinogion. Her mother looks confused, but nods, wishes her a good night, and leaves. Anissa reads about how Math, son of Mathonwi, gathered the blossoms of oak, of broom, of meadowsweet, and shaped them into a woman. She wonders, idly, what kind of flowers could be combined to make her? There are owls on every continent in the world except Antarctica. The so-called war lasted just over a month. Anissa learned the word ceasefire in August. 
Her father put her on a plane to London the moment the airports were repaired. Before she started going to school, Anissa's mother took her aside. When people ask you where you're from, she told her, you say England, all right? You were born here. You have every bit as much right to be here as anyone else. Baba wasn't born here. She felt a stinging in her throat and eyes, a pain of unfair. Is that why he's not here? Is he not allowed to come? Anissa doesn't remember what her mother said. She must have said something. Whatever it was, it was certainly not that she wouldn't see her father in person for three years. The Welsh word for owl once meant flower face. When Izzy said Bladaworth was made of flowers, Anissa had imagined roses and lilies, flowers she was forced to read about over and over in books of English literature. But as she reads, she finds that even Bladaworth's flower names are strange to her. What kind of a flower is broom? And she likes that likes that no part of Bladaweth is familiar or expected. Anissa has started teaching herself Welsh, mostly because she wants to know how all the names in the Mabinogion are pronounced. She likes that there is a language that looks like English but sounds like Arabic. She likes that there is no one teaching it to her, or commenting on her accent, or asking her how to speak it for their amusement. She likes that a single F is pronounced V, that W is a vowel, likes that it's an alphabet of secrets hidden in plain sight. She starts visiting the Owl Center every weekend, feeling like she's done her homework if she can share a new bit of Mabinogion trivia with Izzy and Bladaweth in exchange for a fact about owls. Owls are birds of the order Strigiformis, a word derived from the Latin for witch. During Anissa's first year of school in England, a girl with freckles and yellow hair leaned over to her while the teacher's back was turned and asked if her father was dead. No! Anissa stared at her. My mum said your dad could be dead because of the war, because there's always war where you're from. That's not true. The freckled girl narrowed her eyes. My mum said so. Anissa felt her pulse quicken her hands tremble. She felt she had never hated anyone in her whole life so much as this idiot pastry of a girl. She watched as the girl shrugged and turned away. Maybe you just don't understand English. She felt something uncoil inside her. Anissa stood up from her chair and shoved the girl out of hers and felt, in the moment of skin-touching skin, a startling shock of static electricity. The girl's freckles vanished into the pink of her cheeks, and instead of protesting the push, she shouted, Ah, oh, she shocked me! In her memory, the teacher's reprimand, the consequences, the rest of that year all melt away to one viciously satisfying image. The freckled girl's blue eyes looking at her, terrified, out of a pretty pink face. She learned to cultivate an appearance of danger, of threat. She learned that with an economy of look, of gesture, of insinuation, she could be feared and left alone. She was the girl who came from war, 
the girl whose father was dead, the girl with powers. One day a boy tried to kiss her. She pushed him away, looked him in the eye, and flung a fistful of nothing at him, a spray of air. He was absent from school for two days. When the boy came back, claiming to have had a cold, everyone acknowledged Anissa as the cause. When some students asked her to make them sick on purpose, to miss an exam or assignment, she smirked, said nothing, and walked away. Owls have a narrow field of binocular vision. They compensate for this by rotating their heads up to 270 degrees. Carefully, Izzy lowers her arm to Anissa's gloved wrist, hooks her tether to the ring dangling from it, and watches as Bladaweth hops casually down onto her forearm. Anissa exhales, then grins. Izzy grins back. I can't believe how much she's mellowed out. She's really surprisingly comfortable with you. Maybe, Anissa says, mischievous. It's because I'm really good at not asking anything of her. Sure, says Izzy. Or maybe it's because you keep talking about how much you hate math, son of Mathonui. Ah, oh, that prick! Izzy laughs. And Anissa loves to hear her, to see how she tosses her head back when she does. She loves how thick and wiry Izzy's hair is, and the different things she does with it. Today it's half-wrapped in a white and purple scarf, fluffed out at the back like a bouquet. "'He's the worst,' she continues. "'He takes flowers and tells them to be a woman. As soon as she acts in a way he doesn't like, he turns her into an owl. It's like he needs to keep being in charge of her story, and the way to do that is to change her shape.' "'Well, to be fair,' She did try to kill his adopted son. He forced her into marriage with him, and he was a jerk too. <laughs> You're well into this, you are. It's just... <sighs> Anissa bites her lip, looking at Bladaweth, raising her slightly to shift the weight on her forearm, watching her spread her magnificent wings, then settle. <sighs> Sometimes I feel like I'm just a collection of bits of things that someone brought together at random and called girl, and then Anissa, and then... She shrugs. Whatever. Izzy is quiet for a moment. Then she says, thoughtfully, You know, there's another word for that. For what? What you just described. An aggregation of disparate things... An anthology. That's what the Mabinogion is, after all. Anissa is unconvinced. Bladaweth's just one part of someone else's story. She's not an anthology herself. Izzy smiles, gently, in a way that always makes Anissa feel she's thinking of someone or something else, but allowing Anissa a window's worth of view into her world. You can look at it that way. But there's another word for anthology, one we don't really use anymore. Florilegium. Do you know what that means? Anissa shakes her head and blinks, startled, as Bladaweth does a sidewise walk up her arm to lean gently against her shoulder. Izzy smiles a little more brightly, more for her, and says, A gathering of flowers. 
Owls fly more silently than any other bird. When her father joined them in London three years later, he found Anissa grown several inches taller and several sentences shorter. Her mother's insistence on speaking Arabic together at all times, pushing her own abilities as a heritage speaker to their limits, meant that Anissa often chose not to speak at all. This was to her advantage in the schoolyard, where her eyes, her looks, and rumours of her dark powers held her fellow students in awe. It did her no good with her father, who hugged her and held her until words and tears gushed out of her in gasps. The next few years were better. They moved to a different part of the city, and Anissa was able to make friends in a new school, to open up, to speak. She sometimes told stories about how afraid of her people used to be, how she'd convince them of her powers like it was a joke on them, and not something she had ever believed herself. Owls purge from themselves the matter they cannot absorb. Bones, fur, claws, teeth, feathers. Is that for school? Anissa looks up from her notebook to her mother and shakes her head. No, it's Welsh stuff. Oh. Her mother pauses, and Anissa can see her mentally donning the gloves with which to handle her. Why Welsh? She shrugs. I like it. Then, seeing her mother unsatisfied, adds, I like the stories. I'd like to read them in the original language eventually. Her mother hesitates. You know, there's a rich tradition of Arabic storytelling. The power flexes inside her like a whip snapping, takes her by surprise, and she bites the inside of her lip until it bleeds to stop it. Stop it. And I know I can't share much myself, but I'm sure your grandmother or your aunts would love to talk to you about it. Anissa grabs her books and runs to her room as if she could outrun the power, locks the door, and buries her fingernails in the skin of her arms, dragging long, painful scratches down them, because the only way to let the power out is through pain, because if she doesn't hurt herself, she knows with absolute certainty that she will hurt someone else. Illness in owls is difficult to detect and diagnose until it is dangerously advanced. Anissa knows something is wrong before she sees the empty cage, from the way Izzy is pacing in front of it, as if waiting for her. Bladaweth's sick, she says, and Anissa feels a rush of gravity inside her stomach. She hasn't eaten in a few days. I'm sorry, you won't be able to see her today. What's wrong with her? Anissa begins counting back the days to the last flare, to what she thought. And it wasn't this, it was never anything like this, but she'd held the Mabinogion in her hands. We don't know yet. I'm so sorry you came out all this way. Izzy hesitates while Anissa stands, frozen, feeling herself vanishing into misery, into a day one year and four hundred miles away. Owls do not mate for life, though death sometimes parts them. The memory is like a trap, 
a steel cage that falls over her head and severs her from reality. When the memory descends, she can do nothing but see her father's face over and over, aghast, more hurt than she has ever seen him, and her own words like a bludgeon to beat in her own head. Fine, go back and die. I don't care. Just stop coming back. She feels, again, the power lashing out, confused, attempting both to tether and to push away. She remembers the shape of the doorknob in her hand as she bolts out of the flat, down the stairs, out the building, into the night. She feels incandescent, too burnt up to cry, thinking of her father going back to a country every day in the news, every day a patchwork of explosions and body counts, every day a matter of someone else's opinions. She thinks of how he wouldn't take her with him. And she feels, irrevocably, as if she is breathing a stone when she sees him later that evening in hospital, eyes closed, ashen, and the words reaching her from a faraway dimness, saying he has suffered a stroke and died. Anissa! Anissa! Izzy has taken her hands, is holding them, and when Anissa focuses again, she feels as if they're submerged in water, and she wants to snatch them away, because what if she hurts Izzy? But she is disoriented, and before she knows what she is doing, she is crying, while Izzy holds her hands and sinks down to the rain-wet floor with her. She feels gravel beneath her knees and grinds them further into it, to punish herself for this, this thing, the power. And she is trying to make Izzy understand, and she is trying to say she is sorry, but all that comes out is this violent, wrecking weeping. It's me, she manages. I made her sick. It's my fault. I don't mean to do it, but I make bad things happen just by wanting them, even a little, wanting them the wrong way, and I don't want it anymore. I never wanted this, but it keeps happening, and now she'll die. Izzy looks at her, squeezes her hands, and says, calm and even, Bullshit. It's true. Anissa, if it's true, it should work both ways. Can you make good things happen by wanting them? She looks into Izzy's warm, dark eyes, at a loss, and can't frame a reply to such a ridiculous question. Think, pet. What good things do you want to happen? I want... She closes her eyes and bites her lip, looking for pain to quash the power, but feels it differently. Feels with Izzy holding her hands, Izzy facing her, grounded, as if draining something out into the gravel and the earth beneath it, and leaving something else in its wake, something shining and slick as sunlight on wet streets. I want Bladaweth to get better. I want her to have a good life, too be whatever she wants to be and do whatever she wants to do. I want to learn Welsh. I want to... Izzy's face shimmers through her tears. I want to be friends with you. I want... She swallows them down, all of her good wants, how much she misses her father and how much she misses just talking in any language with her mother, and how she misses the light in Rie and the dry, dusty air, the sheep and the goats and the warmth always of her grandmother and uncles and aunts and cousins all around, and she makes an anthology of them. 
She gathers the flowers of her wants all together in her throat, her heart, her belly, and trusts that they are good. The Truth About Owls Anissa and her mother stand at the Owl Center's entrance, both casually studying a nearby freezer full of ice lollies while waiting for their tickets. Their eyes meet, and they grin at each other. Her mother is rummaging about for caramel cornettos when the sales attendant, Rachel, waves Anissa over. Is that your mother, Anissa? whispers Rachel. Anissa goes very still for a moment as she nods, and Rachel beams. I thought so. You have precisely the same smile. Anissa blushes and looks down, suddenly shy. Her mother pays for their tickets and ice cream, and together they move towards the exit and the picnic area. Anissa pauses on her way through the gift shop. She waves her mother on, says she'll catch her up. Alone, she buys a twee notebook covered in shiny metallic owls and starts writing in it with an owl-topped pen. She writes, The truth about owls, but pauses. She looks at the words, their shape, the taken-for-granted ease of their spilling from her. She frowns, bites her lip, and after a moment's careful thought writes, But she has run out of vocabulary, and this is not something she wants to look up. There is a warmth blossoming in her, a rightness pushing up out of her chest where the power used to crouch, where something lives now that is different, better, and she wants to pour that out on the page. She rolls the pen between her thumb and forefinger, then shifts the journal's weight against her palm. She writes, And smiles. And welcome back. This story is like a gobstopper. How, you say? Well, it's relatively small, but once you get into it, you realize there is a lot to think about. It has so many lovely layers of depth, and each one is as sweet as the one before it, and it's got all the feels you could ever want. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. Feedback for this week is for Podcastle number 370. Congratulations on your apotheosis by Michelle N. King, read by Christiana Ellis. Comments for this story were positive. I'm blinking had this to say. The story took some twists and turns I wasn't expecting. Just as I formed an idea of how the rest of the shape of the story would go, something changed. In a good way, it kept me on my toes while also being internally consistent. Number five said, I enjoyed the attitude of the all-powerful being, very human qualities of boredom, pettiness, and competition, and apotheosis is a fantastic word. You know what, number five? I totally agree. Apotheosis is a terrific word, and it's fun to say. Devoted 135 was quite enthusiastic. This was a fun story. 
giving her the perfect relationship and then revealing that it was all a part of the upgrade was a super low blow. Sure, he wasn't real before yesterday, but is he real now? Would making the goddess take it all back actually be tantamount to killing him? I didn't blame her for compromising after that. It goes to show that sometimes your own advice is the hardest to take. Crenellated, diaphanous, sarcomere, mmm, words. What do you guys think? We appreciate the comments and would love to hear more. Net surf on over to forum.escapeartists.net and let us know what you thought of the story. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast going so we can bring you the best fantasy fiction week after week. If you can't donate, tell all your friends about us. Well, that's our show for this week. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, our slushers, Arun Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, Melissa Hofflich, Jennifer Albert, and myself, our audio producer, Peter Wood, our forum moderators, Thalia and Asakat, our editors, Graham Dunlop and Rachel K. Jones, thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with another story. Until then... This is your eagle-type host, Khalida Muhammad Ali, reminding you in the wise words of Toni Morrison from her novel, Song of Solomon. You want to fly? You got to give up the shit that weighs you down. Over here at PodCastle, we're gearing up for our second annual Artemis Rising event. During the month of September, PodCastle is looking for submissions to celebrate Artemis Rising, a special month-long event across all three Escape Artist podcasts, in which we will be featuring stories by some of the best female and non-binary authors in genre fiction. Our sister podcasts are also taking original submissions for the event. So if you identify as female or non-binary, please visit PodCastle for Fantasy, Escape Pod for Science Fiction, and Pseudopod for Horror for more details.